Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 346 theater 3 the crystal mirror and look if this is not necessarily the beginning of the end it is most definitely the end of the beginning no in fact we should not be churchillian here this is definitely the beginning of the end the last episode before you break through to the sunny uplands of well more noodling actually since we have a guest episode on ladybird and then the great rebuilding next so sorry. But don't worry, then we'll get back to murder and mayhem. Before I start, I have a message for you. You may know that a couple of times I have presented at the Intelligent Speech Conference, which has been online for the last few years. It is back in town again on the 25th of June and is stuffed full of great speakers such as Jennifer Dazal of the Art Curious podcast, the boys from Rex Factor, a podcast that started even earlier than me, and Jamie Jeffers of the ever-popular British History Podcast, plus loads more. And you can get a discount when you book online at intelligentspeechconference.com and use the code ENGLAND when you check out. And here now, before we start, is a delightfully potty advert from two of the speakers, Luke Baxter and Ben Jacobs, which is just so typical of them as they define the phrase sui generis. Ben. We're on someone else's podcast. Let's not intrude too much. You've got 30 seconds to tell this wonderful listenership about the conference. Shoot. Oh, okay. Uh, Intelligent Speech is back again. It's a conference that brings together your favorite educational podcasters with their fans in an intense one-day online extravaganza. It's all happening online on June 25th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Between the three keynotes and the 42 individual sessions and roundtables, it's a three-ring circus of online content. Wow, what are they going to be speaking about? Our theme this year is crossings of one form or another. Very arty, very chic. Amazing. Where can people get tickets? Intelligentspeechconference, all one word, dot com. And tickets are $30, but if you act now, you will get the early bird special of $20. And if you use this show's promo code, which hopefully the host will shortly provide, you will save an additional 10%. Wow! Cue rousing music. Now then, back to work. I promised we'd talk a little more about the social lives of the Roaring Boys and all those thefts in London, and about Ben Johnson. But first, we're just going to finish off Thomas Decker. 
because I need to tell you that Decker was also the author, as we said, of many pamphlets, and one of those gives us an intro to today's subject, which is a comic pamphlet he wrote to an imaginary young visitor to town about how he should spend his time and present himself while in the city. How much it reflects truth is a big guess. But given Johnson's opinion of Decker as a bit of a waster, it might well almost be autobiography. Anyway, he starts off by advising a good, long lion, and then keeping your hair long to frustrate your enemies' rapiers, leaving your name carved in woodwork all over the city to advertise your presence in town, and dressing to kill. There's an awful lot about delivering a lot of loud-mouthed bragging about possible or imagined exploits in the wars and exploration to make you look, you know, exotic, interesting. And then where to get a good lunch and how to avoid paying and how to make an entrance at the theatre. That involved basically arriving late, making sure that you sat ostentatiously on the stage while smoking your pipe. Try doing that on Jury Lane these days and see where you get. Off then to the tavern after the play, again cutting a dash, making a nuisance of yourself and with the waitresses, then avoiding paying the bill again. There's a theme. Roaring Boys seems to be a good description. It'd bring me out in spots. This image of conviviality in the world of Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre is a very attractive one. All those talents sitting around drinking sack and being generally, you know, witty and stuff. And maybe the most famous of these along that, those lines is Ben Johnson, the Mermaid Tavern and the Fraternity of Cyrenical Gentlemen. A few words about Jen Bonson first, though really it's almost impossible to say just a few words about Jen Bonson. He has a hell of a history. He was born poorly, his own description, a clergyman's son brought up by his widowed mother and a second husband, a brickie, somewhere around Charing Cross in London. He went to school as a day boy at Westminster School, where he was taught by the great Elizabethan antiquarian William Camden, about whom we must speak sometime. He couldn't take to his father's trade, though. One lawyer talked about the young Ben following his father around with his trowel, reciting verses from Homer. Brickies are given to doing that, to be fair. Anyway, bricklaying just wasn't for him. So, in 1591 probably about 20 years old by then. He went off to find freedom and adventure in the wars and he served in the army for a year in the Low Countries. Then on his return, he started work not on the building site but in the theatre as a journeyman player. A few years later, in 1594, he married Anne Lewis. His rise to prominence really started in 1598 with his play Every Man in His Humour, which was put on by the Lord Chamberlain's men, with Shakespeare and Richard Burbage in the leading roles. By 1603, things had gone wrong at home and he was living apart from Anne, and now he was living with Esme Stewart, who was the son of James's erstwhile favourite, Esme Stewart, and he was living in Blackfriars with him in London, which is rather interesting, and it might be that he used this connection because when James I arrived in London, he wrote furiously and started off his career at court producing masks. He did a lot of masks, often in collaboration with Inigo Jones, with whom he had a rather vitriolic partnership sometimes. Johnson frequently ridiculed Jones. 
The height of Johnson's career took him through to the 1620s with masks, plays and poetry, when then his productivity began to decline a bit. He suffered a series of strokes during the 1620s, but continued to work and remain well known. He felt rather ignored, though, by the court of Charles I, who seemed to have considered him yesterday's news, and he died in 1637 to be buried in Westminster Abbey. Now, he had his run-ins with both his colleagues and the authorities did our Ben. He played with Catholicism and spent a stint in prison around the time of the gunpowder plot, though he claimed to have gone voluntarily to prison to help out a friend who had been accused. He was a convivial, garrulous, combative type with a big mouth. During his trip to Scotland, his host, William Drummond, took notes while Johnson laid about him at the reputation of all and sundry, including our Bill, of course. He was involved in a couple of well-known groups. The Sons of Ben, for example, was a literary club in the 1620s, after his reputation had, of course, been established for a decade and more, and they met in the Apollo Room at the Devil Tavern, and Johnson had a marble slab above the mantel with his Rules of Conviviality. But the most famous club was that which started meeting sometime after 1611 at the Mermaid Tavern. The Mermaid Tavern was a popular place for banquets and guild meetings and lay between Fish Street and Bread Street in London, and one of the draws of it was the quality of the fish suppers, apparently, being, of course, cheek by jowl with the merchants of Fish Street. It was also very competently run by its publican, William Williamson, who was known an honest man and of good government and would not suffer music and illegal games in his house. This was important. Despite our image of the wild, roaring boys and nightlife of the Renaissance, the truth was that taverns could frequently get in trouble with the authorities if they didn't run a tight ship. Having said that, the patrons didn't always play fair with their tavern hosts, so Williamson himself had to fight off a bit of illegal grief after the excesses of another drinking club in 1600. This was the uninvitingly named Damned Crew, organised by a bona fide, honest to badness, no hold bars, roaring boy called Edmund Bainham. Sir Edmund had been a soldier in Ireland, and we know what that means here at the History of England, do we not? Because we've covered it. They were not the bringers of truth, light and justice. On the first Friday of every month, then, a diverse group of leading lights in London would arrive at the Mermaid under the eyes of the organiser, Thomas Corriott, a famous traveller and wit who acted as the MC and a sort of buffoon to get things going. I've often thought that the group arse plays a much undervalued and yet critical role. I have played it many times. Anyway, this was the fraternity of Cyrenical gentlemen, and upstairs they'd go to a private dining room for an evening of wit and wonder. The room into which they were invited would probably have been highly decorated, and historian Michelle Callahan speculates that it was probably painted from top to toe with mermaids. This, and the name of the tavern, probably explains why the fraternity was called the Cyrenicals, after the French for mermaid, Sirene. This was not a literary club exactly. It was a drinking club, more like. But while the object of drinking clubs that I've been involved in tend to focus on drinking to the name of Cardinal Puff or Ibble Dibble with one double calling t and two dibbles calling Ibble Dibble three with and so on, 
and alarmingly frequently end in some sort of obliteration or collaboration with the Great White Telephone, drinking was not the only focus here. The idea was that this was a place to meet influential people, to shamelessly promote your talent through your wit and versifying. The club we mentioned before, the Sons of Ben, that was more in the line of a literary club. To be honest, I don't know if the idea of drinking clubs really needs any sort of historical roots. I mean, how complicated can it be? But people do trace them back to all those fraternities that were common in the 15th century associated with the church and towns and which withered after the Reformation and needed replacing with something else. Sadly, of course, unlike those groups and guilds and religious fraternities, drinking in taverns was an overwhelmingly male affair unless for women accompanied by their husbands or women there to do a job. Accordingly, the background of the Tyrannicals was varied, though we don't know exactly who they are, though there is apparently one letter from Coriot which gives us some clues. I'm sorry to say that it is not the opinion of those with large brains that the bloody bard was among them, the bard, of course, as you know, being a stranger to comedy. There were courtiers, including Inigo Jones, who was officially surveyor of the king's works at the time, and Richard Connock, who sat on Prince Henry's Council of Revenue. There were secretaries, like John Dunn the poet, at this time in the service of Sir Robert Drury, who were lawyers, members of Parliament even, such as the noted wit and organiser of the revels at the Inns of Court, Richard Martin. There were also businessmen, like Sir Lionel Cranfield, would you believe, prior to his parliamentary toasting. And there were, of course, men of letters, such as Johnson. Those men of letters probably also included the playwright Francis Beaumont, because he wrote a warm letter to Johnson, remembering those glory days. What things we have seen, done at the mermaid, heard words that have been so nimble, so full of subtle flame, as if that everyone from whence they came had meant to put his whole wit in a jest and had resolved to live a fool the rest of his dull life. If you want to hear a bit more about the Serenicals, by the way, let me recommend you a podcast, That Shakespeare Life, produced by Cassidy Cash. Episode 161 is an interview with Michelle Callahan about that very subject. You might have noted that I haven't really talked much about women, and I am sorry about that. But of course, as you know, women were not allowed by law to act which is a bit odd, because it's not the case around Europe, because they were perfectly allowed to do so in Spain, for example, where it was an absolutely honourable profession. And the smart set at court in London loved performing in masks, as they did in country houses and all that. But apart from that, it was a complete no-no. Furthermore, the way that women generally appeared as characters in plays tended to fall into a few rather formulaic and misogynistic types, which reflect the attitudes of the day. So, there's the feisty rogue like Mole Cutpurse, who we'll hear about in a sec, who have aged relatively better because at least their story involves holding their own in a male world. More often, there's the compliant and dutiful wife doing their duty for their male family members, whatever the cost to themselves. There's the woman as victim, like Webster's Duchess of Malfi, murdered simply for marrying outside her station. Or there's the evil scheming woman, a familiar trope. Now I am told there are exceptions, 
Beatrice Joanna in Middleton and Rowley's The Changeling, which I have to take on trust because I've never seen it, and I'm told that that is one of the many reasons why Shakespeare is so admired, because some of his female characters have a little more complexity and agency to them. There were also a couple of exceptions, though small, to the writing thing, and one of them was Emilia Lanier, born Bassano. After her father died, she wasn't content to simply lean into the world of marriage allotted to her, and so she turned down many such offers. She was something of a beauty by all accounts, and she managed to wrangle herself an introduction to court through the Countess of Kent. Once there, she was duly a big hit. But to stay there, given that she didn't have a lot of wealth, she was forced to become the mistress of the Lord Chamberlain. When the inevitable pregnancy came about, she was sort of married off, I suppose is the word, though fair dues, it does seem that the marriage was perfectly amicable. So far so enterprising, but very much within accepted female roles. But Amelia, as it happens, is thought to be a good candidate for Shakespeare's dark lady, and that points towards possibly the path Amelia did then follow of becoming a poet. I don't think that those who know such things consider her a great poet, but one of the things that marks her out, apart from her gender, was her defence of women against the traditional role among the religious as the source of original sin, and in defence of women's talents, and incidentally, the inequality of the privilege of gender at birth. I think I also read somewhere that it's been suggested that she wrote some plays with Billy the Bard, and that does lead to some interesting speculation. Writing was very often collaborative. Pouring out all those plays was hard work, and it's speculated that maybe women in the background were involved in writing. Writing was often very collaborative. Pouring out all those plays was hard work to do on your own, and it's speculated that maybe women in the background were involved in writing, unseen, unrecognised. Who knows? Another example of involvement is our Roaring Girl, a play by Thomas Middleton about the aforementioned Mole Cutpurse. Because Mole was a real-life person called Mary Firth. She was, so I'm told, from an early age not interested in the life mapped out for her as a woman. She could not endure the sedentary life of sewing and stitching her needle, bodkin and thimble. She could not think on quietly wishing them changed to a sword or a dagger and cudgels. So she took up in Bankside, dressing in men's clothing when she felt like it, smoking a pipe and becoming an expert swordswoman and excellent shot. She mixed freely with the Bankside hoi polloi as well as theatre people. The authorities, of course, did not approve and described her as a bully, whore, bored, pickhurst, fortune teller, receiver and forger. She was never a whore, though, and had a long-term relationship with Captain Hind, who was admittedly a notorious highwayman, but also a well-off watchmaker. Moll loved the fact that there was a play written just about her and often went to go and see it, sitting in the audience. The play itself includes within it a suggestion that, hey, maybe the cut purse will appear on stage. And so one day in 1612, do you know what? Mole decided that, all right, she would do just that. And so she did. As a result, she was hauled off to the boardy courts for wearing men's clothing and ordered to do penance as a result of her bit of fun. 
She turned up at the allotted time to do her penance, and at her place in St Paul's, and started pouring out her heart along with buckets of tears, but she was clearly as drunk as a lord. So everyone stopped listening to the sermon going on and listened to Mole's hair-raising stories instead. As a result, Mole then spent six months in the Bridewell House of Correction, beating hemp and reflecting on her sins. In her fifties, Mole acted as a spy and courier for the Royalist cause in the Civil War, and apparently shot General Fairfax in the arm. But she had managed to avoid the noose and died in 1659. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One thing that women could do was go to the theatre. And they did so in numbers, maybe a full equal 50% share, although no woman of substance would go unaccompanied. No Elizabethan and Jacobean play was a riot, and make no mistake. And I have a couple of anecdotes for you. File 45B, subsection 256, open brackets, David's Theatre anecdotes, close brackets. Ready? I have been going to the theatre ever since I was a nipper, Leicester Haymarket, for the first 18 years of my life, after a trip to the Burnie Inn for fish and chips, usually with the folks. We were very staid. Always got dressed up in the best bib and tucker to go and see the arts, you know, how it used to be. Full battle armour. Once, we went to me and my gal, I think it was. Anyway, the one with the Lambeth Walk. Robert Lindsay in his Citizen Smith days. Anyway, during the Lambeth Walk, the actors came down into the audience and started a big conga doing the Lambeth Walk. Hey! And it was great. Everyone joined in, legs are going all over the place, congered around the Haymarket. What a blast! Except the Crowthers, who resolutely sat in their seats and refused to move, stayed right where they were, me and my mum and dad, carefully avoiding eye contact, looking stonily straight ahead. I was Dying inside, ladies and gentlemen, the Crowthers were not channelling the spirit of the early modern Renaissance theatre. The second anecdote is less horrific. I went to see Inspector Calls, and Heinemann, we sold copies of that play by the absolute lorry load. It was a set text, GCSE, I think, maybe A-level. Anyway, I went to see the Inspector, expecting the same old sitting in serried ranks, drinking in the culture as normal. Unless I'd been at one of those hideous West End theatres, where I'd be sweating buckets, worrying about whether the pain from the tiny seat would ever fade, getting close to faint and calling the bank manager to warn her about the price of the tickets. Scandalous, those places should all be knocked down. But anyway, the normal fare was not what I got. It was stuffed full of GCSE sitting teenagers and they were having a riot, shouting stuff out, yelling to each other, laughing, joking, bloody great it was. And thus, to the point of these long, long rambling anecdotes, That's a little what theatre must have been like back then in the day. There was taking part, gentle listeners. There was taking part, engagement. First of all, there was a right old scrum about the place before you got in. Places were first come, first served. No online booking before you arrived. 
And as I'm sure you are all aware, in most theatres there was seating in the three tiered galleries, but in the pit everyone was standing, the groundlings. As we have already said, the normal rules of a highly stratified society were exploded in the theatre. Everyone was there of all types and walks of life, excepting the top strata of nobility. When you got to the theatre, you'd be surrounded by a cloud of sellers of all sorts of stuff, including beer and pies, of course, so what's not to like? And there was no commodian code of conduct. If you drank too much beer, you'd have to go and pee in the buckets provided, which must have been a nightmare for all concerned, let alone the women. There'd be cut purses and pickpockets and connors of all sorts, and not just outside either, inside to boot. There was a story told by Henry Peacham in 1622 about a woman that insists on going to the theatre over her husband's worried objections because he's worried that she'll be robbed. She promised to be careful, but lo and behold, her purse was stolen. Well, where did you put the purse, he asked. Under my petticoats, between them and my smock. What, quoth he, did you feel nobody's hand there? Oh, yes, quoth she. I felt one's hand there, but did not think he'd come for that. Maybe I shouldn't laugh. It has caused sexual harassment, but hey, she seemed pretty sanguine about the whole experience. More than pushing and shoving and the scrum of life, there was participation. Before the play started, trumpets would be sounded at three intervals, like the bell these days. Now we are talking about patriotic times. No sign of the disdainful metropolitan elite here, and where... I would think even the last night of the proms would look terribly understated. If Henry V was going to fight in France, there'd be cries of encouragement. As the playwright Thomas Haywood put it, What English blood, seeing the person of any bold English presented, doth not hug his fame and honour his valour? And there were reactions to the great scenes. Stephen Gosson, a theatre writer of the time, reported of a scene where Bacchus wooed Ariadne. The beholders rose up. Every man stood on tiptoe and seemed to hover over the prey. When they swore, the company swore. When they departed to bed, the company presently were set on fire. Villains were hissed and booed. Heroes were cheered. Actually, this was a tradition even in the 19th century, I understand. So Charles Dickens related how in Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be soliloquy, people yelled out, telling him to get on with it. Kill yourself and have done. How delightful. Good plays got loud applause and shouts of approval. With bad ones, things might get thrown at the stage. At the end of the play, it was traditional to have a jig or a dance performed, by which stage things started disintegrating as those who were drunk or antsy took it out on their neighbours. The doors were opened and out you went. Where did it all go wrong, everyone? Where did it all go wrong? That puts me in the mind of another anecdote, actually. So, a waiter turned up at George Best's hotel room where he, when he was in his prime, but under fire by the press for his wild lifestyle. There, he found George, champagne in hand, lying on the bed, laughing with his girlfriend at the time, Best Hotel Suite and all. The waiter, thinking of the newspaper headlines, sadly shook his head, looked at handsome George having vats of fun and said ironically, Oh, George... Where did it all go wrong? Really not sure of the relevance of that anecdote, except that all good things do come to the end, and such is the case for the glories of English Renaissance theatre. 
Some of it was simply about the people. The leading lights died, as people do, you know, and those that came after didn't flourish quite as well. Edward Allen, the actor, died in 1626, leaving 10,000 squid for Dulwich College, so he'd done well out of acting then. Decker was still writing pamphlets in 1638, but was no longer well recognised. Ben Jonson was maybe the last of the Golden Age, but he was out of favour for some time by his death in 1638. And anyway, even one of the sons of Ben humbly asked him in a poem to recognise that his gifts had failed him. Tastes had moved on. Charles I's court was much more formal than his father's relaxed, bohemian, friendly and slightly louche court, and he ran his very differently, much more formal and controlled. Grand and elaborate masks were in. Raucous and rumbustious plays were out. Children can find their parents embarrassing, I am told, and like to change things around. Something of the excitement maybe had died. I am busking here, but drama was no longer quite so new and fresh and extraordinary. Tastes had changed away from the grand style, the historical epics, from Marlowe's mighty line, which I'm told is a thing with Marlowe. I did then find out what the mighty line is. So here goes for my attempt at being a thesp. When Faustus meets Helen, he says... Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. This is apparently called iambic pentameter, folks. Five beats to a line, two syllables to each beat, and the accent on the second beat. By golly! Let's give that a go, shall we, with one line. Was this the face that launched... A thousand ships. Sure, I quite got that right. Any advice welcome before I contact Rada, darling, don't you know? Hove, actually. Anyway, they had moved away from that sort of thing and focused instead on light, amusing comedies. Thomas Haywood, in his Apology for Actors, written in 1612, had said, A play's a true transparent crystal mirror to show good minds their mirth, the bad their terror. Well, maybe that wasn't quite so true anymore. Maybe it was more simply a bit of fun and a pastime. And it not only has the changing and maybe declining thing, of course, it has a hard stop. The civil wars happen and the world was turned upside down. In 1642, radical Puritan Protestant views meant that the religious finally got their way. And in 1642, Parliament banned plays because they were full of lascivious mirth and levity which is, to be fair, a true and good point. In 1648, the theatres themselves were actually pulled down and we'll have to wait for another flowering of English theatre under the Restoration when they made up for the lost time. Well, that brings me to the end, I guess, and I'm very conscious of all the stuff I have not covered. I haven't really covered the plays and developments of form, style, meaning and all of that because I'm really not competent to do so, sorry. No, I mean, wah, wah, oops. But I have done my best. What does it mean, gentle listeners? What does it all mean? Any last reflections? One thing that strikes me is the extraordinary diversity of what goes on in terms of culture, intellect, social mixing and all that. Some RSC director talked about the fact they had complete freedom of form. They stole ideas from all over the place. 
but there were relatively few rules, so they could busk, and busk they did. Obviously, whoever it was said it much more eloquently than that. I also read, Lawrence Manley this was, that in a way Protestantism was a core part of this freedom, ironically the extremists being responsible for its eventual cancelling. On the one hand, the divines raged against this new format which threatened the social order, encouraged licentious living and sin, and they were joined by secular authorities in panicking about this third authority that seems to have been created, where people could go and think about complicated issues of authority, morality, behaviour. These were the things that royalty and government were supposed to do, and they could have a blast at the same time. Partly all this invective and attempts to repress were exactly what liberated drama. Stay with me on this one. The idea is that quite early on, an explicit treatment of religious themes, the kind of religious and pious storing telly that dominated the mystery plays and urban cycles, was absolutely not appropriate for the boozing, crime-infested, bucket of wee-populated, uncontrolled environment of the London theatre. So, liberated from the requirement to educate and inform, they no longer did. They had to look to entertain and find other territory, and they found it. It turns out that those in authority were absolutely right, of course, in worrying about this third authority, because the London theatre did give people things to think about in an atmosphere that was much less controlled than the players travelling to county towns or performing in the Lord's Hall under their eye, or most certainly that most controlled atmosphere of the court mask or the ultimate source of education, the pulpit. Here, I must say, I am definitely relying on the thoughts of others. When I go to the theatre, I just want a good supper, a good story and a bit of a laugh and then, you know, off to bed. But for the more intelligent and reflective souls I understand are out there, the plays in our period covered an extraordinary range of topics, current events and controversies, for example. So while pious religious instruction was off the agenda, religious controversy still makes an appearance. For example, Archbishop Whitgift in 1589 sponsored a play that was delivered by both boys and adult companies, probably including the Queen's men, to run a series of performances ridiculing the extreme Puritan fake character Martin Prelate, it was apparently rather crude and OTT, so much so that Francis Bacon complained bitterly about it. Now, admittedly, this was part of the process of removing overt religion from the stage. The Privy Council issued new censorship instructions which deal with players who handle in their plays certain matters of divinity and state unfit to be suffered. But religious controversy and themes continued to be covered if obliquely. So I'm told Malvolio, for example, is supposed to be a Puritan send-up, isn't he? I never liked Twelve Night. Always felt sorry for poor old Malvolio. Oh, um. And Marlowe, I am told, in The Massacre in Paris, was very careful to place the Catholic atrocities of St. Bartholomew's Day next to the various Huguenot treacheries, forcing Protestants to examine their own instincts and values and responsibilities for the resulting chaos. Anyway, we were on themes that appeared on the London stage that took over from overt religious education. So, current events and controversies, the history of England, the history of the ancient world, lands and peoples across the globe, or things closer to home and daily life, love, marriage, gender and sexuality, class, 
crime. In Othello, people now ruminate, maybe race. The triumph of Renaissance theatre is maybe its ability for people to reinterpret and reinvent it for the new ages. All of this was communicated through a variety of dramatic forms. Episodic heroic plays like Tamburlaine 1 and 2, morality tales like Dr Faustus, cautionary tales of the fall from grace like Edward II, and revenge comedy, not something with which I'm personally acquainted, but I'm told the Jew of Malta is an example. These are all Marlowe, aren't they? I'm also told that Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy is another such example, and that they've been linked back for inspiration to a Roman tradition from Seneca. So, I was talking about Renaissance drama as a third authority. All of this then, these themes, these thrillingly presented ideas in a diverse and wildly socially and euphorically mixed atmosphere, gave the opportunity for reflective and independent thinking for self-awareness, reflection and the examination of maybe previously unexamined values and assumptions. If Socrates Johnson was correct in considering the unexamined life not worth living, he would surely have recommended Renaissance theatre, although I'm not sure Bob Genghis Khan would have agreed. At the same time, it has to be said this subtly subversive theatre also supported many of those things that humanists had traditionally been all about. It offered counsel for the mighty in religion and politics. It complemented and provided an ornament for monarchy, nobility, nationhood, and often sought and drew a wildly patriotic response. It was accessible and designed for popular consumption, more so than the state was comfortable with, to be honest. But overall, maybe one of its greatest achievements was that it provided a conscience. It gave the space and encouragement for ethical innovation and individualism. Right, that is definitely it now. I have noodled long enough and indeed far too long, I'm sure many of you would say. Three episodes must be crazy. It is not my specialist subject, but then to be honest, I'm not sure what is. But I know it is a subject on which I think many feel very passionate. So I am very sorry for the various inanities, errors, invasions and omissions. But I hope you enjoyed something of it. I certainly feel more educated as a result, and that has to be a good thing, surely. Okay, dokey, the day is done, and so to bed, hopefully not chased by a bear. Do not forget intelligencespeech.com and the code to use when you buy tickets of England. I am on Hollybury at the moment, unless something's gone wrong, in which case cry for me, Argentina. Next weekend will therefore be a void. After that, I'll be talking to David Perkins about Ladybird and the Ladybird histories, focusing on their author, Lawrence Dugard Peach, and you can have a hack at a visual quiz I did a while ago, which is a hoot. Then it's on to Hoskins's Great Rebuilding, and after that, a walk around the great prodigy houses. And then I promise death and politics resume. Until then, gentle listeners, may the ends of your pineapples forever be smooth. Thank you for listening and for commenting and being part of it all. Where would I be without you? Good luck and have a great fortnight. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.